Welcome to Bamsey's Humanity First podcast. I am Chris Ryan, along with Peter Evers, and a lot to get to on the podcast today. We do this each week, taking a look at what's going on inside the organization, outside the organization. And today's topic of conversation is going to be how the you know impending uh, situations regarding COVID-19, the increase in uh, Massachusetts and across the region, is going to affect Bamsey's operations. We're also going to be joined by Mayor Marty Walsh uh, from Boston, who's going to talk a lot about the coinciding factors of COVID-19 and the mental health uh, epidemic as well, as he's been highlighting that a lot recently. And he's also going to talk about uh, how um, Boston and surrounding communities can go about uh, helping essential workers during this time period and what needs to take place in order uh, to get them uh, not just the recognition they deserve, but also the pay that they deserve as well. So we welcome in CEO of uh, BAMSI, Peter Evers. Peter, how are you? Good, thanks, Chris. How are you doing? Good. Appreciate you joining us. Uh, so I'm sure there's a lot of questions throughout the organization at this point about you know what your plans are um, if we continue to see increases of COVID-19 cases um, around the uh, the community and perhaps even in you know the the organization so you know let's let's start there we've seen some signaling as to what's going to take place from uh, Governor Baker as well as um, you know the, the mayors uh, around uh, the uh, community uh, so what is going to take place at, at BAMSI should we see an increase in, in uh, further increase in cases? Yeah, it's pretty inevitable that there is going to be. Uh, and in some ways, Europe is foreshadowing a little bit what's happening here. I was on my weekly, uh, it's called Across the, the Pond uh, FaceTime with my family. And uh, interesting enough, Britain is going back into lockdown on, uh, next Thursday. So they've named the day as next Thursday. And guess what's happening? Everybody is rushing to have their favorite last meal to see all their friends um so i'm sure there'll be a huge surge between now and thursday when they go back into lockdown but i do think that that's probably what's going to happen here chris if you look about it i think uh, if you look at it 80 80 thousand uh, cases a day is that right we're going uh, in this country and indeed uh, massachusetts is is uh, mirroring that somewhat so it's going to be an interesting time for us what have we learned from what happened in march and how did we progress with that? I actually think we're in a much better position to plan for what is going to happen, given what we know and given what we've had in terms of we've kicked the tires with this technology uh, and how we're using it, how beneficial it is. One of the things I've found, uh, and I think most people would agree, that technology itself is not is we're not going to move into a future where we're just doing everything remote. Bamsey is not that agency. Bamsey has to have the lights on to look after all of the people that we have in the 85 residential programs, and we'll continue to do that. But what did we learn? Well, we did a lot of live-ins where people did two-week uh, shifts, which actually contained the amount of people that were coming into the programs. That worked really well. It's a heck of a strain on those people who are doing it. Uh, and it sort of restricts the amount of shifts that other people can do as well. But if we can have a balance of that, go back to some of those. We're already piloting a couple of places with live-ins um, to see how that goes. But I think we just have to go back into our tech, uh, our, our uh, telehealth mode with our uh, community-based programs. Uh, and we've learned a lot, and people have benefited from that. And if we go back into lockdown, 
That is all that we can do in many of those programs, and we must make the best of it. There's a lot of trainings out there that our training department has put out about how best to use technology and how to spe- how to talk to people through this process and the learning process for the people who use the services. So I think we're in a better position. We will have to go back into lockdown. I suspect that the number of people in the offices is going to be reduced again. If you remember, we went up. Um, from that, um, well, uh, I, I think it was a, a 25% to 50 I think we'll probably go back to 25% in terms of what the state is going to say to us. And it's the right thing to do. I mean, we have to get a handle on this and we have to contain this. And I think our actions as a state and a country since um, probably uh, June have pushed us back into a situation where we're in a second wave. How difficult is it from an organizational standpoint to not know when that's coming? Because you mentioned you know, the kind of the, the, the silliness, if you will, of declaring a particular date when it's going to take place in that, you know, everyone is engaging in the behaviors that they probably shouldn't be leading up to that date when they have to go into lockdown. But it also is beneficial to know, you know, when that date is going to, to be from an organizational standpoint, as opposed to, you know, Governor Baker or whomever, um, whether the decisions are made at the state or the local level or at the state for the local level, which seems like the way that this is heading is that um, as opposed to there being a, and who knows exactly how it's going to transpire, but there may not be a statewide lockdown, but Governor Baker may say, okay, the hospitalization rate is this high in Plymouth right now, so therefore Plymouth and the surrounding area is going to shut down. Um, a, how do you see the uh, the lockdown coming this time around? Uh, and B, uh, it, would you rather have a, a date where they say, okay, we're going to have to do this in a week as opposed to tomorrow. Yeah, I think I would rather have a bit of planning time, but it's unrealistic to expect that. I mean, you know, we have seen cases soar uh, and then we've seen them level off. Um, I think we can predict that some of the behaviors that some people have been engaging in uh, are putting communities at risk. What I worry about is that we'll have, you know, a sort of extreme lockdown in one place and almost nothing, you know, in, say, as you said before, Plymouth County, and then you go out to Worcester, it might not be the same. So that's going to be quite difficult to communicate to people. It would be nice to have a planning time, but I think we've, I think we've had a dry, well, not a dry run, but the first time that we went through this, we learned an awful lot from what, how we can leverage our technology to get the important services to people, whether they be you know, uh, newborns um, to the elderly. Yeah, you make a good point about how the lines are going to be drawn, and that's going to be you know, maddening to some folks where they're on a ta- in a town that's on the border of one county or they live on the in a town on the border of another town. They're like, okay, you're locked down, but that person that lives across the street from you, they're fine. They can, right. do, they can do whatever they want. So that's one of the challenges of um, doing things on a more uh, micro basis is that it's not always going to make sense. And when it doesn't make sense, people get frustrated and they wonder, well, why am I um, the one that gets locked down when my neighbor or family, you know, two houses down, they don't have to just because they live on the other side of the street? Yeah, there was a great example of that. Uh, Actually, there's a golf course that straddles Massachusetts and Rhode Island. And... uh, (laughs) They on one half of the golf course they had one set of rules and on the other literally they did so that that is that happens I'm afraid 
Um, and, you know, we are also at the, the whim of the boards of health of the cities that we work in. So there are so many, and, the, and they don't always make uniform decisions because they don't take uh, direction from the state. Um, so I would ask staff to uh, bear with us and, and be patient and be part of this solution, which is, you know, we have to be flexible uh, and we have to be adaptive to whatever is in front of us. And I think as long as we know what, what we're doing is protecting our staff and our person served. Uh, and you can draw a direct line between our actions and controlling the spread, then I think it's a, it's a good argument to make. Do you think it's from a, a CEO perspective, um, it is going to be more difficult to uh, sell people on limiting the spread the second time around? And, um, you know, I assume that um, there's going to have to be you know, guidelines from within the organization that push forward about the type of behavior that people should um, partake in, whether if you're going to be going into a, a house or going into work, you know, should you be going to Thanksgiving dinner? Should you be doing, um, you know, certain, certain types of things? And, you know, I think that um, the attitude in society is going to be much more split this time around where there was pretty much um, not as universal as possible in America, buy into the first uh, lockdown in Massachusetts and New Hampshire. Of course, there were some detractors, but I would say that we'll say 75% of people are like, were all in mm-hmm. uh, on it. This time around, I don't know. I mean, I feel that, you know, you just look at the number of, we know cases were going up across the region. There were still Halloween parties. People are still looking for their kids to play basketball. Mm -hmm. They're still looking for every opportunity they can to go out if they want to do that. And there's some people that are um, kind of in the middle. There's some people that are all in on the safety side. And there's some that just want to live their lives and want nothing to do with this. Mm -hmm. So the problem, obviously, is the lack of um, uniformity there and the crossover of individuals in the different realms, which leads to a you know, a, a spread. So are you concerned that there's not going to be the buy-in uh, from an organizational perspective and a, a public perspective that there was in the first time? Yes, I am. For a number of reasons. I think the, primarily when this happened, it was new to us. And it was right in our faces that people in nursing homes and congregate living places were dying in huge numbers. Uh, and it was unacceptable. And we went into lockdown knowing that we were protecting uh, elderly folks, uh, but not just elderly folks. We know that we were losing people, um, you know, with other co-occurring illnesses, etc. I think this this second wave um, is less lethal because we've taken care of a lot of the procedures and rubric in these in these congregate living places. I, my uh, my mother-in-law has been in one of them, and it's uh, you have to wear full protective um, gear when you go in, and you know they've worked that out now. So those folks are more protected, but our numbers are going up and up. We're not getting the high mortality rates that we got before. So that's what worries me, Chris, that it will be seen as, well, it's not as devastating, it's not as right in your face, it's not as novel, if you'll excuse the expression, but as it was when it happened in March, yet still it is as uh, contagious and easy to 
catch. And and that's the message that we have to get across. And the other piece, Chris, of course, is that people's mental health is being affected severely by this. You know, at first, I, I was tracking it actually the other day on my messenger that people started, when it started, made jokes about lockdown, day three of lockdown, day four of lockdown. Right. Well, we're going into day, uh, right. I don't know. And, and the, the wear and tear on all of us is something that we need to keep talking about. Yeah, I mean, we all want to rise to meet a challenge but we expect that challenge to have kind of an end date and the first time around you know that was the expectation is that okay we can do this for for a couple months uh let's let's get through it and um it'll be over and as a result of that that i don't think that the mental health piece was as significant because you we're able to rationalize, make a sacrifice, etc. And the light was at the end of the tunnel. You saw that um, you know things were going to get better at some point because that's what we want to believe. And this time around, you know, as we've talked about before, we're going into the winter months. It's darker. It's colder. It's uh, there's less options in terms of getting outside, and there were during the mm. spring. And there's also not that aspect of uh, of hope. Um, you know, we can we we can still try to motivate ourselves. And say, okay, let's, we're going to get through this. We're going to be strong. But you know, when your kids are it, one of the things that I I watched people do the same thing that you did. But mine was with remote learning with my fellow parents. And when school was first put into remote learning, there was all of, everybody on social media. Not everybody, but. It seems like everybody in social media is like, we're going to do this awesome job of homeschooling. This is what I have. I have a calendar listed out. We're going to do this on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. There were pictures of the kids doing all the activities. And um, that lasted for like two days. (laughs) (laughs) And then the reality reality struck. Because, you know, this is a different topic. But one of the major challenges is – doing things consistently. Mm -hmm. And it's one thing to have a great day, like the first day or second day. It's another thing to do that on day 35. And that's why, you know, you have such respect for for teachers and for other essential workers is that, you know, it's not just about doing it um, well once or twice. It's about doing what is replicable. And um, that's the, the major challenge of this is, okay, we're going back into this again. And you don't, you have difficulty finding the joy in in the scenario, particularly given that there is you know no particular end. And as a result of that, I feel that this round is going to have as significant, if not more significant, a mental health effect. Because to me, the daily battle with COVID nineteen is not battling the virus; it's battling. Your whims, your uh, questions, your impositions, all of it from a mental perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what's one of the things that strikes me is the disproportionate effect that this uh, pandemic has had across populations, gender, um, income, all of those things. And we really have to we have to think about that. Um, because there are, you know, residential workers at Bamsey who have to come to work, and if yep. they don't, they're not going to get paid. You know, there are, and, and and there are all of the difficulties that other people have as well. But it's a disproportional effect on people. My um, my niece is an actress, and she just uh, got a great part in a play in London. It's off. 
And these are the, these years are incredibly important to her. you. Think about the elderly. You mentioned the elderly last week. Those people who are thinking these are my solid final years, days. perhaps. Yeah. yeah, and 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 now I'm just being confined to barracks, which is certainly true with so many people. And when you have that disproportionate effect uh, on populations, the depression level is higher for those people who are was affected because they're saying, well. Why is it just me? We've talked about this before, the Second World War. PTSD levels in London in the Blitz were not that high because everybody was struggling with it. Everybody was sort of putting their shoulder to a common enemy. It's different here, and we have to take that into account, and we have to ask people if they're okay as we go into the second wave. And I think in some ways it will be worse because it's going to be the middle of winter. I'm not sure what winter is going to be like this year, but you know, today is a good example of how you're not going to be able to go and have um, you know dinner tonight out you know um, on the sidewalk. Right, and that is one of the most challenging parts of this is that adults – do not like to be told what they can and cannot do, right? They don't. And even if you are, even if you've decided that, um, you know, you're 75 years of age and you're not waiting around two years uh, for COVID to go away or however long it's going to be, and you want to go out to dinner, well, pretty soon the restaurants may be shut down. You want to go to a Patriots game? You can't. You want to go to a concert? You can't. You can't do these things because it's shut down. You can't do it. And... That is the the major challenge too, in that, um, and that's why people are getting so frustrated and angry is that there are some folks that want to be able to um, live their lives as they wish, and they can't because uh, entities or government is saying that you can't do so. And with that comes great frustration and anxiety um, of not being able to live the life that you want, particularly if you know, you've made sacrifices throughout the course of your life. And I think about. You know, our parents, yeah. um, you know, they've 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 worked hard their whole lives. Perhaps they were in a job they didn't want to, and the trade off was, well, I'm going to have my retirement. Yeah. I'm going to be able to, you know, take the trips. I'm going to be able to travel. I'm going to go see Europe. I'm going to do this, and then all of a sudden, it's canceled. Shut down. Shut down. Yeah. And I think that those are obviously, you know, scenarios that um, are for individuals that have been able to accumulate wealth. Um, and I think that you make a really good point about the, the single mom who. For her, it's do I go to work or do I teach my kids or do I leave them at home? And if I'm going to uh, to work and I'm leaving a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old at home, how do I feel about that? I'm worried about them. Mm-hmm. I'm worried about their safety. Mm-hmm. I'm worried about whether the house is still going to be standing when I return. Um, all those things, those real anxiety, and that's what the the battle of COVID-19 is not just the virus. It's all these Absolutely. different things. Yeah. And in some ways, you know, you could say that our government has let us down in terms of a stimulus package because, it, you know, there is something about – and I was just thinking, you know, in China, when we think about China, people in China are probably used to their government telling them what to do. Yeah. And so it's it's not such a big – Well, South reach. Korea – everybody's always compared yeah. South Korea to the United yeah. States. And South Korea has various things that they can do that are illegal in this country yeah. in terms yeah. of, of monitoring its citizens, yeah. imposing certain things, yeah. et cetera. And, yeah, I mean – one of the greatest things in our country – actually, the greatest thing in our country is our freedom. That's right. And, um, but in circumstances like this, um, you know, there is going to be a pandemic, yeah. and it's going to continue because of that, uh, that freedom. 
Yeah, but what I think when you think about what's happened in the past, so, you know, the, the um, flu of 1918, I think of TB outbreaks in places like Boston where public health trumps individual freedom. And, and in, a, in a society like ours, which allows for free movement, et cetera, et cetera, you have to have some constraints around that. But people are finding it really difficult because, as you say, these are the things that we've got used to over the years, and now somebody's trying to take them away. And by the way, you can't, it, it, being told you can't work and then there's no package to help you, I think uh, sort of rubs salt into that rather open wound. But what makes this pandemic also challenging from a mental health perspective is that there are some individuals that – if they get COVID-19, they feel, and the data shows, they're barely affected. Yep. And, you know, if we were talking about the TB or the flu of 19, those were lethal to everyone. And so if this were a pandemic that um, if you came into contact with it, you were had a 50-50 chance of survival across the board, the buy-in would be remarkably different. (laughs) So that, again, is a part of the mental health perspective where you can – I hear people all the time like, oh, you know, there's 99.9% chance if I get COVID, I'm going to live. So 0.1% chance. Why am I going to get – why do I have to invest myself in that? Yeah, maybe something happens to my my dad, so I won't see my dad. Right? (laughs) Yeah, I guess. And that is the way that (laughs) – that's the way that people are approaching this. So it's difficult – because there is it like it's it's lethality or lack of lethality actually actually creates more of a mental health challenge. Yeah, and you know, if it's not right in front of you, it seems that it, the people it's just, abstract. <laughs> correct, it's, it's in the abstract, and, right. and uh, that's that's very disappointing, really, if you think about it. Because, right, because public health is everybody's health, and if you if and I think cultures that see that on a broader scale are, m- are more likely to do better. Um, but you know. Uh, I think people are holding out for the vaccine. They're, you know, they're holding out for the therapeutic that's coming along. I don't know where we're at with that. We haven't been told the truth about that. I think that adds to people's sense of anxiety. Who do you believe now? Um, who do you believe in government? I, I'm, I'm, I think that that affects people's anxiety on, on both sides of the political um, uh, aisle. So I'll do, yeah, all good points. And I, I don't mean to, you know, minimize the lethality by any stretch of the imagination for individuals, but I'm just speaking in regards to, you know, anecdotally having conversations and really seeing, you know, the mindset of individuals play out on social media and presenting, you know, that um, perspective, because that perspective is certainly out there. And, and in my view is why, you know, you don't have a collective buy-in, why individuals are not wearing masks. And it is selfish, but they're saying this is something that is not going to affect me and there's no chance that it's going to, and that is their their mindset in regards to it. And that is one of the major hindrances towards having a complete you know, buy-in on very simple things like mask wearing mm-hmm. and social distancing and hygiene. Those three things that would do so much, but people – are not willing to buy into it because they feel that it's not going to affect them and it impinges somehow on their freedom. We're going to get off this topic (laughs) and into a different one here for a second before we welcome uh, the mayor of Boston, uh, Marty Walsh, here to the podcast uh, for a conversation that uh, I'm going to have with him. And I want to talk a little bit about um, our organization as we've uh, been pushing out our I Am Essential campaign and talking about the opportunities available from a – human resources and employment standpoint within uh, the organization. And 
I think that one of the the great things about this is there's such upwards mobility uh, in the organization. In next week's podcast, we're going to feature some interns who have risen throughout um, the organization. And it's so awesome to go to the houses or go to the programs and see the level of care and commitment that um, these individuals have uh, for uh, the work that they put in on a day-in, day-out basis. Yeah, it really is. And um, one of the great things about sort of uh, post-COVID and certainly before we go into the next round is that um, on a personal level, I've been able to get out and, and meet folks. And it is uh, it continually amazes me at the quality of, um, of life that the folks who live in our homes have and also the how beautiful uh, our buildings are. Uh, you know, when we look at our strategic plan, we have to be able to provide people with a nice place to live, not somewhere where the, you know, the windows are cracked, falling over. Our, our maintenance people do a fab- fabulous job with keeping the buildings up, but it's the, it's the love and, and, the, and the tenderness with which our staff treat our person served that strikes you when you go out um, and, you know, it, 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 even in the quieter moments, you can understand why people have got into this business. And I think one of the things we're talking about a lot at BAMSI is that, you know, your first job at BAMSI is, is not just the shift that you do or the five shifts a week you do. We need to talk about the career that awaits people because there's nothing that improves retention in an organization than the knowledge that you're going to be taken care of and trained and offered the opportunities for advancement uh, and to create a career. Uh, and that's what the I'm Essential um, uh, profiles that you've been uh, doing have sort of spoken to. Yes, there is an opportunity to move up. And the major- I believe that the majority of uh, positions filled, supervisory positions filled in our organizations, should be taken by those staff who are internal to the organization because there's again nothing that improves the morale of an agency than knowing that we take care of our own and that we promote our own and and there is no hindrance to anybody regardless of of you know their education or the country that they came from or whatever that the opportunity is equal for all of those people so you know as far as that I'm concerned that's in- incredibly important and uh, and now uh, I'm going to turn it back over to Chris who had a earlier conversation with uh, Mayor Walsh. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about the beginning of COVID-19 and of course Boston um was one of the the epicenters of COVID-19 and you had to deal with it in a way that not a lot of other uh, mayors and states had to, to deal with. And there is that element of local control, which is really, really important, and I'm sure you're a huge advocate for. But there was a, a time period in which the federal government, and specifically President Trump, had a lot of information, a period of, of, of weeks, if not uh, a month, uh, in which he had a lot of information um, that was not shared with you know, a city like Boston, a state like Massachusetts. And I'm curious as to what you think the effect was of a lack of a strategic federal plan or, you know, just consistent leadership on that issue and how that kind of spiraled downwards and made things more difficult for you. I mean, in Boston, it was very difficult. Uh, You know, I I do agree with the the separation, if you will, of powers. And I think that uh, we should be, we, we, we do make our decisions in Boston and we have a government in Boston set up. But I also believe that we need a federal government that in a time of national crisis, 
they need to step up and be supportive and assistant. Um, in the very beginning of the pandemic, even to, to, through today, uh, there was no clear answers. There was mixed messaging coming out of Washington, D.C. about the virus. Uh, there was no support for, for PPE. Uh, we all remember the stories watching Governor Cuomo in New York looking for ventilators, begging for ventilators, and the federal government having them and not having a way to distribute them, uh, and not having a real clear plan on, on a national crisis. It is and what was and is going to be devastating for, for many, many people in this country, and including Boston, Massachusetts. I know that uh, we're, we're losing businesses. They're not going to reopen. Uh, our restaurants are hurting. Um, winter's coming, as you know. New Hampshire, we have the same, pretty much the same weather. So the outdoor dining works for, for a period of time. And, and then you can't have outdoor dining in the middle of December, January, February. It's too cold. Um, those businesses might not come back. Uh, you have um, a, a CARES Act that, that is languishing right now in the United States Senate. Uh, that CARES Act is, is, not, is not a freebie. That CARES Act is money that comes down to, city, to, to states and cities and towns to help cities and towns to be able to balance their budgets, move their economy forward, help small businesses. There are 200 small businesses right now in New Hampshire, and we have more in Boston, that, that, that have closed permanently due to the pandemic. Um, lack of a national plan and lack of national leadership and help has really crippled, in some cases, some parts of our country. We're seeing it now. All, you know, thank God, New Hampshire and, and Boston uh, and New Hampshire, we're in the red. Boston, New Hampshire's not in the red, um, but we're, we're, we're moving forward. But some of these states around the country, we're seeing them. We're seeing them in the red. That that, that, are, that the numbers are just going up and up and up, and there's no plan to stop it. And Trump's denying that the coronavirus is even dangerous. Do you think that there is enough uh, testing at this point to be able to? work um, on the health front and keeping people safe and also working on the business front to you know, keep businesses open. You mentioned restaurants, and obviously that's a major challenge coming into um, you know the, the winter months. Here in New Hampshire, uh, Governor Sununu pushed forward a plan yesterday to have um, contact tracing be a, uh, a part of what each restaurant does, which obviously creates more hurdles for the restaurant, but it's important from a public health perspective. Um, you pushed forward yesterday um, the Get the Test Boston pledge. Um, and, you know, as kids are going to school, as people are going to, to work, it still seems that the, the testing infrastructure is you know, far from what the ideal would be. What are your thoughts on, on that? And do you feel that testing is adequate enough in, in Boston or from a, a statewide level Massachusetts or New Hampshire, um, to be able to have those two things still working side by side, the health aspect and, you know, the business aspect? Well, I'll tell you right now, the, the testing, uh, we're not doing enough testing in Boston. We're not doing enough testing in Massachusetts. We're not doing enough testing in this country. In the testing, what the testing does is give, gives us an accurate number for what the virus looks like in, in our particular areas, in our states, and our cities. And, and, and by having that accurate number allows us to make decisions to benefit uh, our businesses and, our, and people, meaning that we can then track the, how do we combat the virus if we have an accurate number, where it's happening, what demographic, what neighborhoods, what areas. Uh, and if you have that accurate number, then you don't have to make knee-jerk reactions in making assumptions that uh, the number is either not accurate or accurate, where you can have a, uh, an explosion in cases and close things down uh, and wait to close things down or close things down too early when you actually don't have an accurate number. So uh, we launched yesterday Boston, the Boston Pledge. What it does, it, it allows, it, it's asking companies to give people uh, one hour off 
in their workday to get tested every 14 days so that we can encourage as many Bostonians as possible to go out and get tested so we get a chance to see what the, what try and get, get an assessment on what the real number is as far as coronavirus. Right now in Boston, the coronavirus is at 7.8%. That's testing 1,500 people randomly. Um, and and if, if it is 7.8%, I don't know if it's an actual 7.8% across the city or 7.8% of the people that took the test that day. And there is a difference there. Yeah, there's obviously a significant difference. And I want to ask you as well about um, planning for a post-COVID economy. As you referenced, you know, Boston and, and Newbury Street and some of the, the legendary you know, pubs and restaurants are in trouble if they have not closed already. And, you know, the identity of of your city is certainly one that is being you know, challenged at this point um, by this this pandemic, and you know, we're seeing individuals um, you know, thinking about or moving to uh, New Hampshire, um, uh, and whether it's from Boston, whether it's from New York City, um, to to come up here for a more open um, environment. And you know, I'm curious as to what you think needs to take place from a federal level, as you referenced the um, you know, the CARES Act uh, initially was passed, and the HEROES Act um, has stalled after passing Congress. And what do you feel is needed for a, a city like Boston, or even you know, looking across the country, um, to pave a pathway towards the post-COVID economy with um, changes that we know are all coming in terms of how individuals are going to work, what industries may be utilized less than in the past, what industries may be utilized more? I think first we have to acknowledge, I think, I think in talking to, to experts, that we'll be living in a, a COVID world uh, well into 2021, possibly into 2022. Uh, and, and that means that we'll be, be required, to re- not required, but we'll be wearing masks physical distancing, doing all the things to, to not get the virus, even when the vaccine comes out. And I think what we need from the federal government is consistency in messaging on how to handle the virus from a from a CDC point, from a science point. Uh, I think that that's something that, that has not happened. Uh, anytime the CDC or, or Dr. Fauci or any experts have come out and made recommendations, uh, Trump has just kind of brushed them off. And 225,000 Americans have lost their life due to COVID-19. So I think a message consistency out of Washington, number one. Number two, I think that Boston will come out of this a strong city. We're a strong city now. We were a strong city going into it. Our economy was, was going really well, um, and I think we'll come out of it strong. However, there's going to be work to be done there. And I think having uh, an administration in Washington, D.C., and that's why uh, I'm working, for, I'm pushing so hard for, for Vice President Biden, is that there are other things that, that the federal government can be doing at the same time by bringing confidence back into the American economy. You know, New Hampshire's economy, a lot of manufacturing, driven by tourism, uh, and, and if we were able to get an infrastructure bill that, that was mm-hmm. able to be passed in early 2021, uh, that would impact New Hampshire's roads and bridges and Massachusetts' roads and bridges. Um, you know, that, that, would, that, would, that would boost our economy in the New England region. And, and you know, I, I know that New Hampshire and, and Massachusetts, and we, we are part of New England. We're a special part of the country. We have so much in our region that, that anyone comes to our region, whether they live in New Hampshire or they live in uh, Maine or Vermont or Massachusetts or wherever they live, 
I mean, you're just a drive away to go skiing. You're just a drive away to go swimming. You're just a drive away to, to really enjoy things in our region. Um, and having a president in the White House that understands the importance of that is, is so key to the future of our country. Um, and, and even, like, the threats of climate change. I mean, New Hampshire, um, the, the, the climate is such a big part of New Hampshire. People go there for fresh air. People go there for, for relaxation. People go there for exercise. People go there for so many different things. In New Hampshire and, and parts of Boston and Massachusetts as well, it, it's just so important. Leadership matters, and national leadership absolutely matters. There is no question about it. Um, I was on a call the other night with Senator Hassan, and I was talking to her about you know about what it would be like to, 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 to work under uh, work with leadership that actually understands and cares for people, uh, truly cares for people, and it will be it will be something remarkable and, and something that that. I think a lot of people in America are, are, are just can't wait, and they're desiring, they're earning for it. So we need to we need to be able to to, to make some changes here in this country. In conclusion, you know, two key pieces of COVID, which I don't think are discussed enough, and I think need to be addressed, um, but the local, state, and um, the national level. Uh, one is the mental health crisis, which is coinciding with this, and you know, you tweeted about this um, uh, yesterday. And I think that that's really important for individuals to to discuss and for that to be a big part of the uh, the next package that comes through is um, you know, allowing for and creating an environment where um, mental health care is more accessible to uh, individuals across the the board. And the second piece is kind of alongside that is you know the essential workers, the individuals that are bagging groceries at the grocery store that are working at the uh, long-term care facilities. I feel like we need to do more for, for those folks. So those two pieces, how do you address the mental health piece, and um, how do we get more money in the pockets of essential workers? This has been, this has been one of the most, at least for, for me, I'll speak for me personally as, as, as a person and as a man, probably some of the most toughest, the most difficult times I've had to deal with as an elected official. There is stress of uh, coronavirus, which brings you the stress of people being unemployed, which brings you the stress of businesses going out of business. We have, we have systemic racism. We have protests and demonstrations all across the country. We have unrest. We have, you know, leadership in Washington that's not focused. And, and so yesterday, yesterday at my press conference, I talked about mental health and the importance of people, and, 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 and don't worry about the stigma. And anyone listening today, if you're struggling and, and you just feel like you're at wit's end, Make a call to somebody. Make a call to a healthcare professional. Um, be able to talk about it. And, 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 and just It's not as bad as everyone thinks it is. We live life a day at a time. And I think that if we get through today, uh, things, will, things are going to get better in this country, all across this country, including in our cities and states in America. Um, but the federal government does need to make more investments in mental health. A lot of the crises we're seeing around the country with the police-community relationships, a lot of it's mental health. And quite honestly, we should have a structure set up that our police departments around America don't need to respond to mental health crises. There should be there should be more money and more dedication into mental health in this country that we don't see today. And I think that again, by getting rid of the Affordable Care Act, would would put a big hole in accessibility to mental health services, and not just mental health services. Quite honestly, substance use services, people that are struggling with alcohol abuse, people that are struggling with drug addiction. All of those different issues we need to we need to be more focused on. The second part of, of your question is the essential worker. Um, you know, th- this this pandemic has really you know when 
we'd usually talk about, um, you know, first responders, they're heroes, and they are. They're, they're the ones that when, when somebody calls 911, they show up and, and they go into a burning building and they go into a crisis and they save us. During this entire pandemic, essential workers, all essential workers, grocery store clerks, people working in the corner store, uh, they have been just amazing. And I think that we have to look at the, the structure of how we pay people in this country and what value we place on certain jobs. We play, no disrespect, but we pay CEOs of hospitals and universities big, big dollars to run colleges and run hospitals, and those are important jobs. But we found out during this pandemic, if the grocery store clerk left their post, people would have gone starving. And I think that we have to look as a country again, and I know that Biden-Harris have been talking about this, uh, Vice President Biden has been talking about this, and not just recognizing, but, but supporting in a real way our essential workers all across America. And our essential workers, quite honestly, our janitors as well, custodians, people cleaning buildings, all of those folks, they've stepped up in a big way during this crisis. Yeah, I think too often we have, as a society, as a nation, have equated one's bank account with their value to society. And I think that that is a mindset that has changed during the course of this pandemic, and and now we obviously have to, to follow that with um, some uh, additional funding for those individuals. This is the Humanity First podcast. I am Chris Ryan. Thanks so much to Boston Mayor Marty Walsh for joining us here on the podcast. And uh, I want to thank everybody for joining us here. Thanks to Peter Evers, my uh, co-host, the CEO of BAMSI. We'll be back with you next week for another edition of the Humanity First podcast.